Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Along with many others, I too think that God is essential to the grounding of morality. But I also believe that many or most people hold this sort of belief for the wrong kind of reason, and I'd like to get it straightened out. Now the question of the grounding of morality in the sense that I'm going to be preoccupied with it has been on the agenda of philosophy ever since the Ring of Gyges episode of Plato's Republic, which pivots on the obviously challenging question, why be good in situations where you can be sure of getting away with being bad to your advantage. Now there are two, I think, substantially different ways of posing the issue uh, that's uh, involved in this question. And uh, the issue can take two rather different forms. One is, why should I be moral? Why is it that I'm well advised to act as morality requires? How is morality conformable behavior really in my best interest. And the other question is, why must I be moral? Why is it that acting morally is required of me through its being actually obligatory rather than merely somehow advantageous? Why is it mandated rather than merely advisable? Now, as regards the first question, a much favored line of response runs essentially as follows. Morality is a matter of rational self-interest. In acting morally, one supports and promotes a system of action from which all of us benefit. Avoiding a bullum omnia contra omnes is of the essence here. Think of the alternative between orderly queuing and the Baker, Baker's establishment and uh, avoiding a free-for-all. By honoring the strictures of morality, we engender a user-friendly system of procedure from which all of us benefit. Kurt Byers' classic moral point of view sets out the details of this kind of an approach, and what you have here is what might be called the best interest theory of morality. Now, the Achilles heel of this theory is that its line of reasoning shows only that we're well advised to be moral, that meeting the demands of morality is somehow conducive to our best interests individually and collectively. What it does not show is why one is obligated to be moral, why it's a matter of duty and obligation to be so, and not just one of advantage, prudence, and self-interest. So we're still left wondering why those transgressions are not just ill-advised and counterproductive, but actually wrong and wicked. Now this latter issue, I think, calls for a quite different approach, one that's not geared to the deliberations of that first question, but that shifts the orientation to the second one with its concern for the mandating dimension of duty and obligation. It's specifically on that issue, on that detailed and narrow issue of uh, moral obligation, dutifulness, uh, having to do it, that uh, is going to be at issue in my discussion. Now, in this regard, there enters the by now familiar doctrine connecting God and morality 
the so-called divine command theory, which has it that actions become wrong through the prohibitions of God, that various human doings are rendered morally unacceptable by the fact that God prohibits them. Moral duty, then, on such an approach, issues from the mandates of divine will, and moral transgression is effective, effectively wrong because it involves disobedience to that will. Now, notwithstanding its surface plausibility, I think this position has its problems. For one cannot but acknowledge that God, as a preeminently rational being, would always want to have a good reason for whatever his wishes and commands would be. He is not an oriental potentate who issues arbitrary edicts. And those good reasons must be such by virtue of their very nature as good reasons, and thereby serve as such not just for God, but for us as well, were we in comparable situations, which of course we might or might not be, depending on the kind of comparability. So on this basis, morality's rationality is going to be something that's merely ratified rather than created by the circumstance of its being commanded by God. God's commandments prohibit misdeeds because they're wrong in their nature. They don't somehow wrongify otherwise indif morally indifferent acts. Uh, Andrew, of uh, uh, earlier discussion notwithstanding, although that's going to take a long argument, which I don't have time really to develop. So I want to say that the divine mandate is not the ultimate basis here, but that the divine commands can certainly ratify and identify the uh, demands of morality and conform the moral norms, but that the moral norms have ultimately a kind of raison d'etre of their own. It's a very Kantian position. We can argue about that. Now, it's clear that anyone who has someone's best interests at heart would want that individual to be a conscientiously moral agent, seeing that immorality, potential uh, benefit notwithstanding, is psychically corrosive. And so, while God undoubtedly wants and indeed commands us to be moral, it's ultimately not because of this that we should be so, but because of the injury that immorality does to ourselves and our best interests. It's clear then that a, divine, a benign God would want us to be moral, but of course he would have this wish for our sake and not for ulterior reasons of his own. And so the ultimate actual <coughs> obligation can, I think, neither, uh, neither lie in self-interest nor self-oriented benefit, nor yet in the mere existence of a divine command. Where then does that obligation, that mandatory aspect of moral injunctions come from? Now, what I propose to argue is that what's at issue is not a duty of obedience, but rather a duty of gratitude. On such an account, it's not God's role as ruler, but God's role as creator that's going to be crucially at issue in an adequate account of morality in this particular aspect of the problem. The inherent propriety of a due acknowledgement of benefit received is, from that point of view, the crux of the matter. Morality's mandate is not grounded in a social contract of sorts, but in due acknowledgement of benefits received in appropriate gratitude to the author of it all. So, 
From such a standpoint, the crux of moral obligation lies not in the will of God in the divine decrees and mandates as such, rather it lies ultimately in the beneficence of God, in the debt incurred through the benefit, benefits bestowed, uh, the benefit uh, that is not a contractual product, but in fact a freely bestowed boon. And precisely because of its being freely bestowed and not the product of a bargain, it's the source of obligations of propriety and honor rather than obligations of arrangement or contract. So what's wrong with failing to acknowledge a debt of gratitude? And the short answer is everything. <laughs> From every relevant moral perspective, there's something that's going to be amiss here. From a prudentialist perspective, a failure to be appropriately grateful creates a counter incentive to people's doing other good things for us, or even worse, laying ourselves open to bad treatment from them. From the angle of enlightened self-interest, any failures are to be appropriately grateful is a disqualification from seeing ourselves as somehow deserving respect. From the angle of divine command theory, a just God would unquestionably want us to be appreciative for receiving otherwise unmerited goods and would instruct us accordingly. And from the angle of deontology, appropriate gratitude is demanded by the principle of generalization of acting towards others as we would have them act toward us. So all in all then, from every morally relevant line of approach, debts of gratitude form a significant sector of mandated appropriateness. On such a perspective, the ultimate pivot for the grounding of morality then is neither self nor society nor obedience to the will of man or to, of God, but rather the consideration that it's something that we owe to the power, force, or potency that has brought us into being as a debt of gratitude for affording us this opportunity. And it's this, exactly this debt of gratitude, a gratitude to God, if you will, which in the final analysis is, I think, the basis of the dutifulness of moral obligation. We're well advised to be moral because it's to our individual and collective advantage. We may well be required to be moral because it's a divine mandate, but we're obligated to be so because we have to make a due acknowledgement of gratitude for benefits bestowed by putting our shoulders, as it were, to the promotion of the good and not, in consequence, doing the kinds of things that's involved in immorality. We're parts, that is to say, of a world not of our making that puts at our disposal a multitude of unearned benefits by way of resources and opportunities for the realization of good things. And in due acknowledgement, we owe it to the creative forces that have brought us into being to make the most of our opportunities for the good. And this obligation calls upon us, among other things, to make the most and best of ourselves to proceed in our action to produce the very best version of ourselves that we can possibly realize. And it's this obligation, I think, that is the ultimate basis for duty. But why should our being here, Dasein, our existence in the world, be seen as a boon that mandates acknowledgement and gratitude? Why not join Schopenhauer and some Eastern thinkers in thinking of our existence as a test and perhaps even as a punishment or penalty? The answer to this question, I think, lies in the fact that our present here <clears throat> does afford us an opportunity to, con 
does afford us an important opportunity to contribute to the good of the world. Our very existence puts at our disposal an opportunity beyond price, the chance to act and to function as a free rational agent able to make a contribution to the goodness of the world. Do we really have this opportunity? What if the realization of good results is just beyond our power, rendered so by adverse circumstances? What if, to put it in Kant's terms and refer to it again, a stepmotherly nature, stepmothers uh, ought to be uh, unhappy at this point, but never mind. If a stepmotherly nature does not accord us the resources and opportunities to achieve good things, after all, the world is not designed for our personal convenience. Well, never mind. The answer here lies in the consideration that contributing to the world's good is not, in the final analysis, a matter of actual achievement and success in that endeavor. To be sure, an uncooperative nature may well render the realizations of good, these the realization, the actualization of these opportunities for the good beyond our reach. But what we can in any event do, and always do, is to try. And we owe it to the forces and potencies that have afforded us these opportunities, to God, if you will, to make such an effort. And in this regard, the crucial and absolutely benevolent fact is that even merely to try to be a better person is to succeed in making us one. You have to chew on that one a little bit, but uh, I think if you do chew on it, you'll find it's strange sounding, but true. So, in merely trying and setting ourselves to make the effort, we automatically succeed in making the world a better place than it otherwise would be. So contributing to the good of the world is, in the final analysis, something that's always going to be at our disposal. In this regard, we're going to get an A for effort, irrespective of the issue of ultimate realization. No misfortune can altogether deprive us of the opportunities for contributing to the world's good. So, to summarize, what I've canvassed here is a line of argument that proceeds as follows. One, no invocation of self-advantage can reach beyond prudence to establish actual obligation. Two, nor can moral obligation be rooted in a contract entered into with a view to self-oriented benefits. The three, the most viable source of obligation lies in what I've characterized as a debt of gratitude in acknowledgement for unmerited benefits and in specific for the benefit of existence. Four, the, at the level of morality at large, this indebtedness cannot be oriented to particular finite agents, to one's parents or fellow citizens, where a finite and limited indebtedness is always involved. It can only be directed to the larger creative powers and potencies that have put the boon of actual existence at our disposal. And finally, in the setting of uh, these deliberations, those larger creative powers and potencies comprise what, for other more traditionally theological points of consideration, might be called, it should be called, God. So the upshot of that line of deliberation is 
that in the final analysis, morality should be grounded in God because he is the ultimate source and focus of the obligatoriness that's characteristic of morality as such. That is the best and most cogent way to ground that obligatoriness is through the route of gratitude, of that kind of specific obligation. For while we could doubtless be required to be moral by a divine command, we are morally obligated to be so, not by obedience or subordination, but in due acknowledgement of gratitude for benefits received and opportunities afforded. Now, in closing, I'd like to say a few words about the theological dimension uh, of these considerations and the role of God in ethics. In this regard, I'm what might be called an explanatory uh, indispensabilist, indispensabilist regarding the role of God. Uh, because there are, I think, certain factors about the nature of morality, and specifically its binding must have to do uh, obligatoriness that we cannot explain by other kinds of means. The special aspect of moral obligation is going to come in here. Morality, immorality, and think of whatever your favorite mode of immorality is, uh, uh, inflicting pain on other people for the sake of your own pleasure, taking things from other people simply because you want to have them. Remember, I have to build in always the motivation. That's the lesson of Kant. I can't just say killing is bad, but simply killing for the sake of uh, indulging your dislike of someone or harming someone out of schadenfreude. These are the kinds of considerations that have to be brought to bear. Okay, so immorality is not just ill-advised and unfortunate, but it is bad, wicked, evil, reprehensible. Uh, John von Ingen's talk this morning uh, reminded me of Kant's lovely phrase, the ignominy of vice, and that's what the pivot here is. What is the basis of the ignominy of vice? And uh, yeah, against uh, uh, Mark Murphy, I am uh, uh, committing the uh, uh, flaw from his point of view of dealing with the god of the gaps, because I do think there is an aspect of morality that we cannot account for short of uh, an invocation of God. Now, from here on in, I'm, I'm happy to uh, join uh, Chris Tollefson and uh, let the matter rest in large measure on the analogy of the good father. Because from this point of view that I'm urging, this gratitudinal point of view, God is the good parent. He has, not quite literally, knocked himself out for you. He has made a home for you and for your buddies and indeed, he has created you. And he wants nothing but the best for you. And being moral is part of what is for the best of you. So there is a kind of ontological indebtedness. We owe God everything. And immorality from this point of view is simply vandalism. It's consciously, it's using our are is consciously setting out to do something bad that has to do with the motivational aspect of the, of the evil doing that I was describing. We are conscious creatures. We have consciousness, free will, and a conscience, that is to say, a sense of knowing 
what's right and wrong. And we simply kick our maker in the teeth, so to speak, by using these resources at our disposal to set out to do something which we recognize uh, is bad and that he doesn't want us to do because it's bad. So we're violating his wishes in these matters. So immorality is a willful and perverse injury to an order of being that has been created for our benefit. And moral obligation roots in that violation of morality constitute the supreme ingratitude. It's an ontological ingratitude to the maker to whom we owe our very being. So from that point of view, God is at the very center of the characteristic issue of the characteristic force of moral obligation as necessary and mandated. Its primary and its, uh, its, its reprehensibility lies in the violation of that kind of, uh, that kind of an obligation. And finally, I want to add a brief postscript for the benefit of John Crosby. He wants an account of morality that sees God at the center of an explanation of what's wrong with committing suicide. And I think the theory of ontological indebtedness is something that's going to give him exactly what he wants. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.